Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. This is one that I've been waiting for for a long time, conversation that I've looked forward to, uh, just given the content. And those of you that have heard me wander on about my youth will know why here in a little bit. But we'd like to welcome Dave Sanford to the podcast. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for your time tonight. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Big fan of the show. Well, thanks. And we've got Michael coming from Denver, Jason coming from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, we're all home, but it is loosening up a little bit, so we're we're much happier fellows than we've been in a while, as we've been able to get out and about. Dave, speaking of getting out and about, first of all, first thing, what is your favorite outdoor experience you've ever had? Doesn't necessarily have to be tied to photography or cinematography, just your favorite overall outdoor experience ever. Ever? Yes, it's, it's swimming with whales, humpback whales in Tonga. It's hands down. That, that's like the greatest experience of my life. What what makes it that greatest experience? What about it is just that thing? Um, there's there's obviously the the size of whales. You know, being as big as they are, um, it really really makes you feel humble. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and you know, you're in the, in the middle of this massive ocean and the cool thing about it, unlike a lot of wildlife experiences, you, you are, you're, you're not a part of the experience. You're sort of, uh, uh, sitting on the sidelines watching the experience, you know, and with the whales, they choose to interact with you and you become a part of that experience. And, I, there's really no words to describe it, you know, um, it's, it's one of those things that's just so surreal, so magical, you know, they're so big. And, and as I say, the fact that they have an open ocean, they can go anywhere they want and they choose to come to you and interact with you. And I think that truly is what makes it such a special wildlife encounter. Now, when you have those encounters, do you always have a camera in your hand or do you choose sometimes to just leave the camera back and just have the experience? Um, in all honesty, no, I didn't leave the camera back, but yes, there was lots of time that the camera wasn't up, you know, and, and I'm like, I'm that way with all my wildlife experiences. I think a huge part of wildlife photography is observing and learning by observing and, and not with a camera in front of your face. And, and sometimes, yeah, you just want to absorb it. And, and maybe, you know, you're backlit and it's not the right light or there's, you know, a lot of backscatter in the water or whatever it may be. It's just like, OK, I'm just going to put the camera down and, and enjoy the moment um, and sort of soak it up, you know. Uh, yeah, like the first drop in that I had, um, it was a male uh, that was below us, you know, singing. And it was just, I I, I didn't take any photos. Um, all I did was enjoy it. And I was in the water for about 20 minutes. And, you know, the, the, the whales quite a ways below us, probably about 30 meters below us. And 
the sound, the vibration, I'll never forget that reverberating through your chest and, and, and the, my housing in my hand. Like it just, it sends chills down my spine talking about it right now. Um, and, and watching that whale slowly rise to the surface for a breath. Uh, I was just like in awe and taking photos was the last thing on my mind at that time. So yeah, I think it's great to, to be able to sit back and, you know, take it in and, and be present in the moment sometimes. So I got two questions. Dro- explain what a drop-in is, because I don't think everybody will know what that is. Yeah. And then also, when they are singing like that, is it deafening or is it audible to you and it's just fine? It's just not overwhelming? It's, I've never found it overwhelming. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. Um, when they're further away, obviously, you know, sound travels you know and and you can hear them in the distance and you may not be able to see them and obviously as they get closer and approach you the the sound the volume increases that intensity the vibration within you the closer you are like when that when they're surfacing and and they're still singing and they're literally only a few meters away from you um the biggest difference is you feel it you feel the, the the vibration of that that sound and it does get louder but it's not anything that is bothersome or, or deafening or anything. And then uh, you you asked about a drop-in. A drop-in is like when you're on the, the back of the boat and um, and you literally jump in um, to be, you know, put yourself in position. So you always try and read the whales. You know, when we, when we find whales, it's not like we, it's like, okay, there's some whales, we're just gonna jump in the water. You know, you gotta read the scene, read the room type thing. Um, sometimes those whales, don't want you to be around and, and you'll know that right away because they're just going to kind of keep doing their thing and moving on their way. And when they're booking it, they're booking it. And sometimes you, you know, you get ahead of them and you drop in. So they're hundreds of feet away and they're sort of approaching. If they want to come be with you and hang out, they're gonna, and if they're not, they're going to go in another direction. And if they choose to do that, we don't, we don't chase, you don't follow them. You don't want to harass them. You know, it's a, it's all about having a positive experience, both for you and the whales. So yeah, you, that's, that's what it's called is, is dropping in when, you know, and sometimes when you drop in, um, you know, the boat's in motion, um, because you might have a heat run and a heat run is when you've got, you know, a bunch of males essentially that are trying to win the affection of the female. So you might have up to, you know, a dozen whales, you know, so that's 40 tons a piece, 30 to 40 tons. And a dozen whales coming at you and all they're concerned about is getting that female and you're dropping in, you know, the boat's in motion and you're dropping in front of them. And it's like all these city buses going past you, you know, and other times it's, it's less hectic and it's, it's very relaxed and the boat stopped and you're just, you know, you just slip in the water and, and the whales are there. And it's just, it is, it's a magical thing, especially when you get a mother and a calf and that mom will sometimes be like, okay, I'm going to go down to the bottom and I'm going to chill out and I'm going to sleep and I'm going to relax and I'm going to let you guys babysit my kid. And to have a whale essentially put her trust in you, you know, and, and you might be there for a half hour, 45 minutes, and she might surface two or three times in that time. And the, the calf might go down and feed for a little bit, but it'll come back up and it plays with you and it wants to engage. And, and mom is totally chill with that you know and then when she decides it's time to to move on then she lets the calf know and they move on it, it's pretty special to think that they 
you know, they trust you with their their babies who are in some cases just weeks old and really vulnerable. Are you scuba or are you snorkeling? It's just snorkeling. Yeah, it's all it's all free diving. Um, so it's, it's kind of non non evasive. You know, um, they're not big fans of the bubbles and everything. So it's just uh, fins and snorkel and mask. It's it's the bare essentials. All right, we're gonna revisit some of this, but I wanna. I want to get to a very important part. So looking on your website, you didn't start out your photography career anyway. Well, I take that back. I'll let you kind of fill in the, the gaps, but you started in the, in the outdoors, but the main part of your career wasn't in wildlife. It was in uh, sports photography was kind of how you hit it off from what I understand. Just, Kind of fill us in on on how you got your start. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely correct in that. The, the majority of my career has been professional sports. When I was a kid, uh, I've, I've always had this fascination and love of wildlife and nature. Uh, that was, you know, um, came about from my parents, my family, and, and, you know, having a love of animals in the outdoors. And then as a kid, too, you know, with Nat Geo and, and, specials like the mutual of omaha and sunday nights and things like that like i that's where i got my love of wildlife i always wanted to be you know around animals and involved with them and so at the age of nine when i was a kid like back then the outdoors sort of meant fishing and hunting and i said to my dad i want to be a hunter you know and he was like well why do you want to shoot an animal with a gun when you could shoot it with a camera the animal can live and, and you got a nice photo and you can show your friends and you can brag about what you could have shot with a gun if you want. So he, a couple of weeks later, he was in a golf tournament and he won a camera. He won a Pentax film camera. I can't, I got to remember the model number someday, but um, <laughs> it was an old Pentax film camera. I was nine years old and he gave that to me and uh, I took it up to the cottage and I started to photograph the loons and the ducks and raccoons and beavers and whatever I could find. My first picture I, I, I ever took was badly back focused of a loon that would be about this big. <laughs> a dot. And, uh, it, and that was the start. And uh, if when I was a kid, I, you know, I'd be getting up at, at 4.35 o'clock in the morning at the cottage to go out and take pictures of the loons. And that carried on into my 20s. And you know, whatever else I could find up there and, um, and close to home in, in a ravine we had by our house, lots of critters and animals. So that's where I got my start. And then in high school, um, you know, I was always involved with sports, playing sports and love sports. If I wasn't playing a sport, I decided I wanted to photograph those sports. And when it came time to go to university, I applied for marine biology, wildlife biology, wildlife science programs, found out I wasn't quite smart enough to get into those. Um, but I also applied for photography programs and I opted to take, I went to Ryerson university in Toronto and I, I took a four year photography course there. And prior to going in, I decided I'm going to try and make a go at professional sports. Um, the reason being, I thought I can always go into the outdoors on my own accord and, and photograph nature and wildlife and, and, um, I can't just show up at the Stanley Cup final or the Olympics or anything like that and just be like, hey, guys, I'm here to shoot. Um, so I channeled myself in the direction of sports. And I was really grateful to have an amazing prof in university 
all the way through Dennis Miles, who was a sports photographer. He got me working with Greg Abel, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs team photographer at the time. I volunteered at the Hockey Hall of Fame my first year. Being in Toronto was great for all this and, and sports. And that volunteer job or position led to an internship. And before I knew it, I photographed 125 NHL games in my last three years at university, um, working under the Leafs team photographer and at the Hall of Fame under Doug McClellan, who I interned under. And um, I, you know, I was back in the day, things were different. So I'd, I'd shoot a game on a legit pass and then I'd forge my own pass and sneak into Maple Leaf Gardens and <laughs> That's how I did so many games. You know, once people got to know my face and I just acted like I should be there and it, it really opened a lot of doors for me. Um, it would pretty much be impossible today now with all the technology involved in credentials, but um, things were different back in the 90s. So, yeah, I was very grateful for those opportunities. And right out of university, Doug, who I was interning under at the Hall of Fame, retired. Um, the Hall of Fame, three days before the 97 NHL season started, they called me and offered me a job saying Doug just retired out of nowhere. So I started working for them and partway through the season, the NHL, I heard the rumors they were starting their own internal photo agency and they contacted me and said, we have been watching you from afar. And they came up to Toronto to talk to me. And, uh, well, that was in 1997 and here I am all these years later and I still work for the NHL as one of their lead photographers. That role has changed a lot over the years with, with things. I used to exclusively work for the NHL. Um, I averaged 100 and basically 125 games a season. Um, now I'm basically doing all the special events like outdoor games, awards, all-star drafts, Stanley Cup finals. So I only work six or seven weeks out of the year now for the NHL in total. And in the rest of the time, that leaves me for my, my nature and wildlife. Um, over the years, like I freelanced for, for Getty Images, for Sports Illustrated, uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee, uh, USA Hockey, Major League Baseball. Um, I've, I've done everything in sports that I ever dreamt up. There's nothing left on the table. So I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, you know, with changes over the years, I started to move, you know, I was sort of cornered in or painted into a corner um you know with changes that the league had to make and i was doing less and less because they instituted a team photo program which incorporated all the team photographers so it it made sense that i wasn't going to travel like i used to but so i had to find other stuff to do and i'm like well what do i know i know wildlife i know nature and i really started to you know take another serious stab at that starting in about 2012 and then 2015 i had a series of photos for, uh, that I shot on Lake Erie that I called my Liquid Mountains, and that went viral. And that, thankfully, it was it was amazing. That blew open the doors on my nature and wildlife career, and and I started getting phone calls and emails and going on assignments to do my nature and wildlife photography. And um, now I would say that that's probably about eighty percent of everything. And and my hockey is the only remaining sport that I do, and it, and it's that sort of twenty percent. So it's been quite the journey. <laughs> it was kind of upsetting to read that a Canadian got to photograph Super Bowl before I was able to get <laughs> to my first NFL game <laughs> photograph. So 
<laughs> well, if it's any consolation, it was it was in Detroit. So it was literally, I mean, might as well be in Canada. It's just over the border, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll go with that. I, I only got to do it because of my proximity, and uh, I, I was I was working for uh, Getty at the time, freelancing, and I was I was the low man on the totem pole. So it wasn't like I was on the sidelines and you know getting the glory shots. I was I was relegated to crowd duty and parties and <laughs> things like that so uh, but it was a really cool experience to, to be a part of it you know you were talking about the forged media credentials you know i can remember in the 90s too if you had a big lens oftentimes that's all you if you just were toting a big lens around people would just yep. say, assume oh yeah go ahead do do whatever you need to do you didn't even need a pass, and you're right. Nowadays, it's like you—it's like getting into Fort Knox, and the gear has changed so much that a lot of the cameras we use nowadays are so small that, I mean, anybody could be using the camera that we're using to shoot professionally. Absolutely, you're so right about that. But yeah, I always used to just say like, you know, act like you belong, and people won't question you. And as I say, I mean, I didn't just show up. I—I'd been there on legit passes, and right, right. I'll never forget. It was, I think it was about four or five years ago at the NHL draft and the, the Maple Leafs old PR was, was leaving the team. And so I thought, oh, I'll tell him the story now. <laughs> <laughs> and just seeing the look on his face, you know, because like, I knew, I knew when, when and where to avoid him when I was on a, a fake credential, you know, and <laughs> I didn't, you, you know, I didn't cause any disturbances and right. Right. Gained some experience and, yeah, made a lot of connections, so I, I have no regrets about doing that. No, I mean, either. It's a way to get a good experience, you know? It's just a way to be there, and, and a lot of times you can't get it if you're waiting for that credential. Yeah, you got you to gotta make your make your own luck type thing. Yep. You know? Yep. We've talked about in the past, and we often get asked the question, you know, what does it take to be a professional photographer? And uh, so now everybody knows you, it takes false <laughs> credentials. <laughs> <laughs> Creating your own opportunity. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It was literally a sticker with Sharpie. That that's what it was. They're pretty (laughs) easy to replicate. So So the the carryover from sports photography to wildlife photography, we often talk about and and going back to you know your specific experience, the carryover from indoor outdoor events to wildlife photography and the changing light and changing environment, changing climate uh, that you're going to be capturing your images in, uh, that's got to be a huge carryover as well. So one prepares you for the other. Absolutely. I've always, you know, I, I get strange looks when people say, you know, oh, you're a photographer, what do you shoot? And I'm like, uh, sports and wildlife. And people kind of give me a strange look and like, you know, how do you, how do those compare? And I'm like, you know, surprisingly they're, they're, they're kind of one in the same. It's just the arena that they're in, literally, or stadium. Like, the arena is different. That's all. How I approach shooting them is, is very similar. I've always said the better you know your subject well, you can anticipate things. And, and so it's no different with hockey. You know, I always like to know what's going on and who the top players are. And you get to know their tendencies, especially when you're shooting sports a lot. And as I say, the better you know your subject, the better you're going to be able to, to produce imagery. And whether it's wildlife or sports... And for me, it's all action, right? You're trying to 
capture that peak moment, um, whether it's in a, a sports arena or whether it's out in, in the wild, there's always going to be a peak moment. And one of the great things that helped me hone my skills was the fact that all of my sports, or probably 90% of it over the last 25 plus years, has all been shot strobed. So the big flash systems that are in the catwalks of the arenas that I'm, I'm tapped into and you have basically one frame every two seconds or so you know now it's different with a lot of the different models of strobes that are out there you can shoot a little quicker but for the most part using the old speedatron 2400 power packs it was one frame every like 2.2 to 2.4 seconds which in sports and in a game like hockey is an eternity you know right. just and if you shoot too soon, you know, and the moment happens after, well, you got nothing but a black frame. So you really have to hone your skills on, on your timing. And I, I truly believe that that has made me a better photographer over the years because I wasn't shooting 10 frames or 15 frames a second, you know. And oftentimes I could hear guys on either side of me sometimes sitting at the glass and you just hear this machine gun fire coming from each side of you, you know, and I'm like, what are they shooting? You know, am I missing something here? You know, like nothing's happened. Um, and I really prided myself on the fact that I would have a moment, you know, and the guy and the guys would be like, you get one frame and you, you had a better image than I did, you know, not all the time, but I'm like, it was really nice to hear that, you know, and, and it did, it really helped me hone my skills as far as like, when to fight you know when to release that shutter for that decisive moment and um and not to do it too soon and it makes it much easier on the back end when you come in from a shoot and you don't have thousands of images to go through you know you know you, you've got a lot less and you can be much more efficient so it carried over into the field as well you know where i don't need to shoot six thousand frames of a bear that's sitting there you know i mean you pick and choose your moments. And, and as I say, just, it's really helped me hone the skills. And the other thing is wildlife and live sports, there's no do-overs, you know, it's not a studio. You can't have someone repeat things or anything. It's one and done. And if you, if you miss it, you miss it. There's no repeats. You know, that's the great thing. Things can look similar. A, a game can be similar you know, a sh but every shift is different. Every time a player skates up the ice or stands in the batter's box, it's different. And you never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the excitement. And the great thing about wildlife is it's very similar that way. It's it's unpredictable and, and you don't know what's going to happen. And you've got one chance a lot of the time, you, you know, and it might be the most epic light or just a really unique situation. And if you don't capitalize, well, you can't say, well, I'm going to come back tomorrow and try that again. You know, it might be similar, but it'll never be the same. So that's that's one of the things I love about both sports and wildlife is, you know, you got one chance at it. And if, if you don't capitalize, well, you've, you've missed it. So when you do get that moment, it, it feels really good. Hey, Gretzky, shoot that again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, he, yeah. exactly. He, he would, though. <laughs> <laughs> Jason is the same way. He'll be, he's the guy that gets the one shot, but it's better than the 150 that you took. <laughs> and oh, yeah, even right. though he's only six <laughs> feet away. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got a lot to learn. I'm trying to do more of that, Dave. I'm trying to be more picky about my shots. It does make life a lot easier after the fact, for sure. But 
It does. Yeah, and that's a that's kind of a cheat that we have nowadays with the cameras we have, you know. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's times where, yeah, you're you're holding the shutter down and you're, you know, um, it's not <laughs> like I, I refuse to, you know, to, to take a burst or anything. Um, but I just find that shooting one frame every couple of seconds for a good chunk of my life, it's it's really forced me to be a, a better photographer, I think. I do have a question <laughs> about your hat. Uh-huh, yes. So you're wearing the, the Aquatech hat, and I saw that you are an Aquatech ambassador from your Instagram page. Correct. Did you get started with Aquatech because you're concerned about falling through the ice at a hockey game? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was afraid to fall through the ice and then a polar bear would eat me. <laughs> the Toronto's where I shot the most and, the, and their mascot's a polar bear. So. Oh, really? There you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, with Aquatech, um, I, I'm really blessed, I think. Uh, I, I started to... Um, Back in around 2009, eight or nine, I guess, like I got involved pretty heavily in the wakeboard scene. And it was that's when I first started using a water housing. And I would borrow a water housing from a friend of mine just to give it a go. And, and I'd be in the water shooting, you know, from alternate angles or on a tube being towed right in front of the rider, or behind the rider. And, um, and then back in about 2014, uh, it was when I thought, you know what, I need to to take this to the next level. And I, I want to start photographing wildlife and waves and, you know, put myself in the ocean and do all these things. So, um, I started asking around and talking to people and, uh, another friend of mine who was a, a Aquatech ambassador, we had some really good talks and he connected me with the, the guys at Aquatech and, you know, like, I just thought, okay, that this is the route I'm going to go. This is the company I'm going to go with. And they, they gave me a nice break because of my relationship with Donald. And, and so I, I bought all this gear, you know, and I'm like, here I am living in London, Ontario, nowhere near the ocean. And within a year, uh, well, within months, you know, I'm, I'm in the ocean in Australia. I met uh, another guy there, Warren Keelan, who's a, an amazing ocean photographer and, and become one of my closest friends. And, Spent a lot of time in the ocean with him, um, honing my skills, and brought that back over here and into Lake Erie. And yeah, here here I am. You know, five years later, um, it's been about a year now since I've been an ambassador for them, and that meant a lot to me. It was really special. Thinking like, okay, I, you know, never had this experience in the water before with a camera, and I was hesitant at you know, taking the plunge um, and investing that much money and uh, literally transformed my career because it was, as I say, it was that Lake Erie series that was massive for that. And uh, that led to me shooting sharks, which was something I always wanted to do my entire life in the whales. And, you know, I've, I've now been able to shoot brown bears in Alaska using the water housing and, and doing all kinds of different things. So um, it really it helped me expand my horizons when it came to my photography. Yeah. Image options. We, we dealt with that a little bit last summer and then Jason and his son were in uh, Colorado and they got some good footage of brook trout also. And when we were in Alaska, we were trying to get footage of uh, the salmon run. Yeah. And I'd love to be able to photograph a bear, you know, with salmon under the surface and the bear above. It's a that, challenge. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's 
it's a risk also because of course you got to put yourself within proximity that you might not want to be at. I, I think it just opens up a lot of doors for you creatively to have that housing in that system and just the option because we can't do that. We've tried, I'm not even going to say the name cause I'll say it right or wrong. I mean, <laughs> say it right. Say it right. <laughs> Altex. It's just, you know, a silicone based housing that, I mean, basically you have to have all your settings in place before you go in the water because you're not going to be making any adjustments down there with that type of a setting, but it's a, it's a cheap option because, right. you know, as you were alluding to, building a relationship with a housing is, is uh, that's not something you can take lightly because it's, they're all built individually for the cameras. And then, of course, the housing can cost as much or more than your camera body, yeah. depending on what you're using. Yeah. It's, um, and it can be intimidating when you start, you know, like I, I know, even, even though I had the housing in my possession, I, it was like I was afraid to take it into the ocean just because it was in, you know, an intimidating thing. Like, am I doing everything right? And, and it wasn't really until I sat down with my friend Warren and, um, you know, he kind of put me at ease and helped me relax with it and that. Because, it's, I mean, it's one thing to be in, in big surf and, and in the waves when you don't have a camera. But then you throw a camera into the mix and you're trying to, you know, like... I'll never forget the very first time I went in with my housing in the ocean with him and, you know, his sort of last words of advice were, do not hold it in front of your face when there's, you know, when there's a wave coming and very first wave I took, bam, right in the face, you know, <laughs> like, um, learn pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, you got fins on and, and you're, you're in sometimes some crazy conditions and, you know, that's, that can be enough to worry about on its own, let alone when you have a camera, uh, to, you know, concern yourself with. And, um, the gear that I shoot with sometimes in the water, like sometimes I'm using a 70 to 200 and I use a one DX Mark two now Mark three, um, in the water. And, you know, they're, they're beasts of a camera. They're, they're heavy. Um, most of the guys that are in the water are using, you know, 5D Mark IVs, uh, considerably lighter, and a lot of guys use a smaller lens. I love using the 70 to 2. Sometimes I even use my 28 to 300, and it's it weighs a lot. You know, it can be like 14 pounds when you have the housing, the body, the lens. Um, sorry, not 14. I'm thinking of something else. Um, about about nine pounds or so, 10 pounds, and it it can be you know really taxing. And sometimes that you get into you know, a situation where that camera gets ripped out of your hand, there's nothing you can do to hold on to it. You know, you've got your wrist guard on and you feel like your shoulder is going to be separated. It rips out so fast, you know. And um, so there's a whole other element of things that you have to bring into play. And when you're shooting things like whales and sharks and turtles, you have a mask and a snorkel on and you're trying to look through the back of a housing and then look through your eyepiece and line the shot up and you know, and, and as you say, you, you've got the adjustments that you have to make. It's a little bit different than, you know, thankfully I can adjust everything I need to on the, the back of the camera. Um, mm -hmm. But when you're in hectic surf or you've got whales flopping around you or sharks approaching you, you know, you, you've, you've got to be on the ball and be able to know what you need to do right away to be able to change those settings, you know, when you have changing conditions. So it's, 
it, it's there's definite learning curve, you know, but I love it. And it's it's just expanded my photography beyond my wildest dreams and taken me to a lot of these places that for years I only ever dreamt of, you know, and, and it's because of this, you know, this relationship with Aquatech and, and having the, the water housings now that it's it's afforded me to have these opportunities that, uh, as I say, I prior prior to only ever dreamt about. I think the competition factor is awesome, right? Because there's just not nearly as many people out there dealing with that, exactly what you're just talking about. There's just so much to it. It's not like you can go to the camera shop, buy your stuff, and away you go. I mean, that's getting the equipment's one thing, and then learning how to use it is not, it sounds like, not something that happens overnight. No, it, as you say, it's a, it's a bit of a learning curve for sure. And um, But once once you've got it down, I mean, as I say, it just opens up this whole other realm of photography for you. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there's obviously not as many people shooting in the water. Um, it's it's one of those things where I always said, like, it's, it's a small community, you know, like there's a lot of people out there that shoot in the water, but relatively speaking, it's pretty small. And um, I've been very fortunate, I think, that to be accepted into that community, you know, to be an ambassador for Aquatech and to have people contact me from Australia, from Japan or places in South America, um, South Africa or wherever, you know, Hawaii, all these people, these the, like who have been shooting in the ocean for years, whether it's wildlife waves or whatever, um, to have them recognize my work and, and, you know, comment on it and, and give me compliments. It's that means the world to me, you know, because as I say, I, I didn't grow up anywhere near the ocean and, um, you know, to be respected by my peers that that have grown up in those situations and shooting in those situations, that means the world to me. You know, um, like I say, I don't know. I, I, it's something I only ever dreamt of and never really thought I'd have the opportunity to do. So I've been grateful to be able to to make the most of it so far, and and I'm far from done. Hey, can you describe that experience when you're trying to get salmon with a bear? I mean, I just. I can only imagine I've, I've filmed it from above, you know, from right on the edge of the stream or Creek or river or whatever. I just can't imagine being out there with your camera and some of the challenges that you're dealing with, you know, with the obvious thing being so close, but what are those challenges that you deal with? The number one challenge was going from camp to where we shot every day. (laughs) Because it would be, it was about an hour and a half walk from, you know, depending on where we went, generally an hour to an hour and a half. You know, we're we're in Katmai, and uh, so you've got, you know, your your long glass and and bodies, and you know, I'm bringing everything with me, and you've got all the water housing gear. So I was walking every day with about 50 pounds on my back, you know, to and from, and that was exhausting, and. Uh, you know, you're walking across the tundra and going through the willows and crossing the river. And, you know, it's, it's that that in itself is a challenge. And you're going on like five hours of sleep a night. And it's uh, but yeah, once you get there, then you've got to take everything out and set up. And uh, as you know, when you're around bears and everything, you can't just can't leave stuff laying around. So and if you move from one location to another, you got to pack everything up and cart it with you, even if you're only moving a few hundred yards downriver. Um, so that, you know, was always a challenge, but the actual setup, 
you're putting a water housing in a river and, and, and or a creek, which is flowing, it's moving, you know? So, um, and you want to put something in there that's going to remain stationary. And you've got bears that weigh quite a few hundred pounds that are <laughs> running around. They could care less for the most part about that housing. It's when they lock their eyes on salmon they want, <laughs> they're going to run into whatever, you know? So it was, there was definitely some interesting moments. You know, I was with Drew, Drew Hamilton and, uh, and my friend Graham Purdy. And we both had housings in there. Like I say, we both had our moments <laughs> um, where, you know, the bears were a little more curious. But yeah, it's, as I say, you got to, I, I developed with my dad, we developed like a stake essentially that I mounted the housing to so I could drive it into the riverbed and kind of hold it into place. And sometimes we were shooting completely submerged under the water. And other times we were shooting with a dome port and shooting over under so you know 50 percent of it out 50 percent under and we kind of had this you know vision of, of as you mentioned like the bear charging towards the salmon and salmon dispersing in the foreground of the frame and maybe a big claw or you know their snout coming down that that never materialized unfortunately um you know the, the moments were there but you know when there was so many factors that come into play like that with the bears coming towards the camera, depending on whether it was, you know, they're coming from upstream or downstream, you might've had sediment to worry about. So it made everything cloudy. Um, sometimes there were so many salmon, you couldn't see the bear. The salmon would kick up the sediment if they got startled, you know, cause the bears coming, the bears would paw at the cameras, bite them and, you know, knock them over and, they were they were fine, you know, and there was no worries that way. But the other factor is too, you're shooting in the water, and the wireless signal isn't going to transmit. So we had to hardwire everything. So we we had uh, 150 foot of cable each, um, and for the most part, we're either using 50 to 100 feet because we're pretty close to it. But you know, you have to wait so you've got that time, you know, so you get everything set up on shore. And then it'd be like, okay, we're clear to go now. And you go out in the river and you put everything into position and you pile rocks around it to help hold it into place and that. And then you just have to hope, you know, um, you, you know, you, you can't, again, that's the, the, the thing with wildlife. You can't direct them. It's not a studio and say, okay, I need you to go this way. And you just have to hope for the best. There was, you know, there was lots of things where, you, you know, the, the, the current would knock the camera loose or bear would knock it over. And sometimes you can't get out there because the bears are there. So your camera might just be bobbing around for 20 minutes or half an hour, you know, before you can access it. You know, the, the, you had to be, be careful with the cord because you don't want the bear catching the cord and pulling it out or getting tangled up in it. So you'd have to bury that cord under the riverbed you know like i'd be you'd be lifting rocks up and putting the rocks down over top of the cord and you know and then the other factor was if you're doing the 50 50s the salmon they would like it would create a little eddy in front of the the uh housing so the salmon would like to come and just sit there and if they got startled sometimes they their tail splashes and you get a bunch of water drops on the dome port so you had that to contend with so there was shot like i had one I had two bears actually kind of charge towards the camera and they, they, they split the camera and I, it was like one of the last days and I was like, 
this is going to be it. This is this is a shot I was waiting for, you know, and hoping for. Got everything out and looked at it, and the salmon had splashed in front of it like its tail, and this, you know, sort of line of water sprayed up into the air, and it was just completely covering the bear's face on the one side, and there was like a big drop covering the bear's face on the other side, and the salmon are going away, and it's just like, it's just, you know, a, a millionth of a second could have made a difference, you know, and um, it, it fortunately became, you know, could have been this amazingly epic shot that I was dreaming of, and instead it's just something that goes into the trash bin, you know, it's, it's that fine of a line, so um it, it definitely had a lot of challenges you know um and there was you know spots that you'd want to put it in the riverbed and it was just it wouldn't hold you know or the current would be too strong or you know the the, the bed would be too soft and there was all kinds of different factors and um and as i say you know bears playing with them knocking them loose and so it made it definitely kept you on your toes made it interesting and it was really happy with some of the, the stuff that i got but there's reason to go back and do it again because, you know, I, I think we're both, Graham and I were both happy, but there's, uh, there's lots of room for improvement and, you know, you learn from your mistakes and, and, uh, and yeah, we just, you know, didn't capture that kind of glorious moment we, we both envisioned. We got some stuff that was really cool and you don't see a lot of that with bears, you know, like it, that was, that was the one driving force behind it you know when you do a search for that and you look around there's very little of you know very little photography of the bear the bears in the water with the salmon and taken from that vantage point so so i'm excited to go back and, and tackle that again and, and see what i can get i think that's the draw of photography for me is it's never perfect there's always something in that image that you wish was a little bit different whether it was light or a shadow or a, a posture. There's always something that you wish would be a little bit different. So that's what keeps you going back. Absolutely. I, yeah. I think that's a good example of that. Jason. Hey, so real quick, Dave, I've, I've, we got to talk about your waves a little more. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll give you a chance to share your information for everybody to go and check out your website too, because they really need to do take a minute and go check out the website because there's some pretty, pretty amazing images on here. And so just a couple things. One, where did the passion come to even think about photographing waves? And then two, I want to talk about like two or three of the images specifically, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. The, I, I've just always had a love of the water. Um, you know, from, from the time I was young, uh, probably stemmed from being up at the cottage and fishing with my dad and, and things like that. And I was always into, you know, water skiing and wakeboarding and just loved being in the lakes. And, and then, as I say, from watching all the nature specials as a kid and, and reading Nat Geo and looking at the pictures, I, you know, and Jaws, to be honest, Jaws fall in love with sharks you know it, it didn't scare me as a kid it was like it that began my fascination so it i always kind of had this draw to to the ocean and um for me when it comes to the lake erie waves after spending time in the ocean and, and kind of honing my skills there um i'd always growing i grew up 
I still do. I live just half hour, 40 minutes north of Lake Erie. And I've always known, I've spent a lot of time in Lake Erie and Erie is known for its violent storms. Um, and it, it can really whip up. It's, it's, it's a huge lake, but it's the shallowest of the Great Lakes. And, and that allows it to really um, whip up in a, in a short period of time. And I've been witness to that. And it was one of those things where once I I was home and I hadn't been around the ocean for a while. I was like, I'm craving to shoot waves. And I'm like, I know what they, that it gets like on, on Lake Erie. So basically it was the fall of 2015 and that's kind of the start of the, the storm season where you get the cold Arctic air mass coming from the North meeting the warm air from the South and they meet over the great lakes. And that's what causes these high winds that are oftentimes during that season, you, you see winds in the, category uh like a category one hurricane strength wind um you know 75 miles an hour type thing and, and above and it, it just gets crazy so i wanted to i was like now i've got the gear whether it's the long glass or the water housing gear i have the gear to photograph this the way that i really want to now and um so i went down there and i'll never forget that first day it was November, Friday, November 13th of 2015. And my parents were in Australia at the time visiting my sister. My sister lives in Australia. And I, I remember on the drive home, my dad calling me and he knew I'd gone to the lake. So he, they were calling to check in on me and like, how did you do? And you're okay. And blah, blah, blah. And do you, do you think you got anything? And I was like, yeah, I said, it, it's really cool. I think I said, they're really moody and dark and kind of menacing. And I said, it's very different from the ocean wave stuff I've shot, which is more nice blue and turquoise and, and those curling barrels and that. So I was like, I don't know how people are going to react to it. Cause anytime I put up something in the ocean that was kind of mean and menacing, it didn't really get the best reaction. So I started posting a couple of these processing them, started posting them. And before I knew it, like I had, all these people starting to contact me. Number one, my friend Warren Keelan, who like I'll, I'll say he's my, my ocean mentor, you know, he taught me so much and he was like, wow, you've, you've got something here. And, um, it was him who he's like, they look like liquid mountains, which is, he coined the term for me, which I, I always use in reference to them. And he, he's like, you need to, do a, a photo essay and an article and get it up on board Panda. So that's what I did under his advice. I crafted an article and uh, put a series of images together and posted it to board Panda. And uh, I, overnight, um, I think it had like a hundred thousand views on it or something like the next day. It was crazy. It just, just blew up and the phone started ringing off the hook and uh and, you know, the emails started coming in and it just, uh, it changed everything for me. So it was, it was me just sort of knowing that what I had was just, you know, in my own backyard and, but I finally had the gear to, to shoot it properly, um, to sort of do it the way that I wanted to do it. And, uh, I never would have dreamed it, it turned into what it has. And, um, it's, uh, as I say, I, I owe everything right now i think to lake erie um and what it's done for <laughs> my, my nature and wildlife career huh. 
I've seen a lot of the ocean wave stuff, right? And you, like you said, the not, and, and they're beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but the stuff out of Lake Erie is just it's it's really wild. Um, like I'm looking at the one you turned you you named Liquid Mountain, and it's just crazy how perfect that is. Um, but there's another one on here called Legion of Doom, and another one that really I'm like like really intrigued with is the Erie Erie. I mean, is that? I mean, I just got to ask, is that all natural? That's all natural. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yes, I'm dead serious. Um, that, that is insane. <laughs> that picture was taken uh, on that first day on Friday the 13th. Um, oh, no way. You know, it was late in the day, just after 5 p.m. And I remember uh, my friend Art Johnson that would, he goes down to the lake with me. He's he's a a, a amateur photographer that um a good friend of mine for a number of years and art just loves going down there with me and i I remember looking at the back of the camera and i showed art and like i i was like you gotta be bleeping kidding me you know like it was (laughs) and i showed him and he was just like just shook his head and um i haven't manipulated anything yes i do my burning and dodging um, as I do to those images. Um, but no, there's no pixels moved or anything like that. That's, that's, that's the way it is. Um, that's incredible. <laughs> what I love about Lake Erie, one of my draws to Lake Erie is aside from the, the, the waves and everything, obviously there's a lot of mythology and folklore that surrounds Lake Erie. There's been thousands of shipwrecks. Um, the spot that I shoot at, there's been a lot of, people unfortunately who've lost their lives at that very beach it's really turbulent water and as so as i say that the the folklore goes back to you know native american culture and you know the the captains of ships and all kinds of different things over the years on erie and i truly believe that the lake's alive you know it, it's it's its own living entity and there's this energy about it that I just can't explain. And it's one of those things where like the eerie, eerie shot, you're never going to see that with the naked eye. You know, it's, it's something that I captured at like a 2000th of a second or 2500th of a second. And literally when you break that down frame by frame, because I was, I was blasting away there, the frame before and the frame after, there's no sense of like a face or anything there. It's just, you know, it boils yeah. down to essentially the light and the and the waves and the, and the the darks and the light tones and just the shape of everything that you know gives you these sort of facial features or or looks within them. Um, it's all you know comes down to light and, and shape, but it's it's one of those things where I I like to say it's it's the trapped souls trying to escape the lake and the lake just reaching up and being like nope. You're, you're staying here in this watery grave type thing. It's, it's bizarre because I, like, I don't know how to explain it, and I'm not the only one, but like all kinds of people. I get, the cool thing is when I started shooting there, it was just, just me. There's nobody else. And now I can go down there on a crazy day, and there's 25 photographers lining the beach. You know, It's super cool to see. And all these people that are sending me imagery of like, check this out. Look what I got. You know, And, and you see these faces and shapes and different things like that and like i say i just i've always believed that all the world is made up of energy and and the energy that you put out 
you get in return, whether that's animals, water, whatever it may be. Um, I, I, I truly believe in that good karma type thing. And, and I think it's served me well in nature. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've been fortunate enough to sort of capture these unique moments and on Lake Erie. And, um, it, uh, yeah. And those days are, are days like so many people to say, Oh, I've never seen the lake like that. Well, most people like to go to the lake when it's a really nice sunny day and, you know, and, and yeah. they can go for a nice refreshing swim. They don't like to go to the lake when it's minus 20 and winds are blowing at 75 miles an hour and the sustained sustained wave heights are, you know, eight to 10 foot. And the waves that I'm shooting are refracting off of a pier. And so you've got this mass of water that's being pushed all the way up the lake from the wind and it's stopping and it has nowhere to go but back out. And because it's so shallow there, it's got nowhere to go but up. So you get these really unique formations and twisting and turning of the waves. And, um, and, and in, a sense, in essence, it doubles that wave height. So you often get wave heights in that anywhere from like 15 to 30 foot range. Um, there's a, an old lighthouse. It's like a hundred and some odd years old um, at the end of this pier. And it sits 33 feet from the water to the top of the lighthouse. Because a lot of people will ask me, how do you how do you know they're that height, you know, without anything to measure them by? And I'm like, well, I've got a lighthouse to measure them by because I've got imagery and there are lots of people out there that are with me that will attest to it, waves that break over top of that lighthouse. Um, I'm not talking about the whitewash explosion that can often go even higher than that. I'm talking about waves that break on the face of that white that lighthouse or over top of it. And gives you a good sense of, of the height of those waves. And um, yeah. there's just so much power and force behind them. And, and the crazy thing about lake waves versus ocean waves is the short duration between them. So mm-hmm. it makes such a challenge to shoot, especially in the water, because you're constantly getting pounded by waves and you're duck diving and you're, you know, I might have a shot lined up and then I'm just looking at a wall of water right in front of me. So you're missing, I'm missing when I'm shooting in the distance type thing. And it's, it's a very low percentage of, you know, good, good imagery or or solid imagery. Like I'm happy if I make one image at an outing to the lake. Um, You know, I've been shooting it for five years this way now. And the other factor is like in 2018, the fall of 2018, I had zero days. There was one day the lake went off and I was in Churchill at the time. And then this season I might have had six days. I think the most I had was 10 or 11 days one year. That first year I think I had eight or nine days. So it's a small window. And not only that, um, you know, in the morning you you can have amazing light, but then it becomes all backlit for the entire day. So you sort of lose that window in the afternoon and then you can shoot again in the evening. And then the waves that I'm shooting, um, when you look at them in real time, they, they exist for like a second, you know, it's just the meeting of these, these two masses of water and it's boom, it's gone, you know? So you can't watch it. You know, the only sense of it forming is I've learned over time to sort of 
watch the water as it, it I, it's like watching a sea serpent or Godzilla emerging from the water because it will come out from the pier and just be this rising mass of water that sort of seems in slow motion, but it's not. And then all of a sudden it just meets, you know, the timing's right of those waves coming in and then boom. And if you've seen it, you missed it. You know, you're never going to see it and then hit the shutter. So, um, you're only going to get a mess of white water after that. So your timing has to be bang on. And, um, you know, as I say, shooting from the water, it's, it's so difficult. Um, you're, you're duck diving, you're being nailed by waves. It's cold. Like I'm wearing an eight mil wetsuit, uh, seven mil gloves. I got booties on Vaseline on my face and a hoodie. And it's, you know, and even shooting from shore, you're being sandblasted like my eyes sometimes are blood red because of the sand getting into them and you get sand getting in your gear and you know i'll I'll shoot from right at the shoreline i have waves washing up over me because i'll just sit there in my wetsuit or hip waders and and get as low as i can and water's washing over me and i'm holding my 600 above my head (laughs) and you're you 600 in winds that are 75 miles an hour or 100 to 110 kilometers an hour it's a sale you know so <laughs> are you trying to talk me out of it or <laughs> um yeah it's funny how many people have come down and and been like you know they they hang out for half an hour and then like see ya because <laughs> as i say some days it's beautiful you get you know a nice warm day because it's that cold arctic air and but it's the warm air that lingers more but most of the days you're you're below the freezing point and and quite often when you get into November, late November and December, um, before the ice forms, it can be, you know, upwards of minus twenty Celsius and, and beyond. So it's not for the faint of heart. Um, hmm. it, uh, you know, like I say, even to stand on the beach there, like because it's always been an attraction. People like to come down and watch it. Most people park in their car and watch from the comfort of their car, though. So, um, <laughs> well, it's it's spectacle. it's another one I've added to my list of things I want to go do for sure. That's pretty incredible, man. Well, yeah, that's crazy. You know, if you're coming up this way. I'd, I'd be more than happy to be your host. So, uh, that'd be great. <laughs> I think it's also one we need to throw into this. Kids, don't do this at home if you don't know what you're doing, yeah, or have yeah. gone with somebody that does in yeah. that category of, of, uh, images, because that, especially the being in the water. Yeah. Hands down. Images that, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dangerous. It's, you know, I mean, there's a, there's definitely an element of, of risk involved. Um, I'm a pretty strong swimmer. I'm a confident swimmer, but I'm not overconfident. And that's what I always tell people is, when it comes to the to the water, you you have to be confident, but you can't be cocky. You can't be overconfident. Um, you got to know your limitations. And there's lots of days where, whether it's the ocean or whether it's the lake, I've shown up and I and I always observe it beforehand. And I'm like, it might be 20 minutes, and I'm like, nope, not going in today. Not happening. This is beyond me. You know, um, I I know my limitations. And when you're out there, you have to make sure that you know, you're always aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And, and in Lake Erie at that time of the year, you can get deadheads. So the, the, you know, driftwood and everything coming in. Sometimes I've been in the water when there's been ice forming and you got chunks of ice. And so there's all kinds of things you have to be careful of, uh, with debris in the water. And then there's the water itself. Um, 
and the cold factor. So you can't fatigue, you know, you need to make sure that you always have enough energy. So if something were to go sideways or wrong, I want to have that energy so I can get myself to safety. I don't want to be so fatigued that I'm, I don't have any gas left in the tank. And I wear two life jackets. I wear one on my torso, like, you know, a normal way. And then I'll wear like a, a wakeboarding impact vest. I'll wear it like a diaper. So I, I put it on backwards, put my feet, you know, put it through my, my feet through the armholes, put it on backwards and, and zip it up. So it's like a diaper. And that allows me a little extra buoyancy. And I can literally, because I'm waiting out there. And then when I, if I'm not waiting, I can, I'm, I'm buoyant at the perfect height. You know, I'm bobbing just above the water level. And, but I can still duck dive when I need to. And, and I always have somebody there as well. Cause yeah, it's, 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 as I say, it, it is dangerous. And, and there's times where I show up and I'm like, no, not happening today. I'm not beyond me, you know? Um, and it's not brain surgery. It's not the most important thing in the world. Um, I'm taking photos, you know? So right. uh, I, I know when to say when, I guess you would say, but at the same time too, I know. My mom always is like, I don't want to know whether it's sharks, whales, the ocean, <laughs> whatever. I just don't want to know. I'll look at the pretty picture in the end. I don't want to know. <laughs> so I always told my mom that if anything ever happened, I was probably having the time of my life up until about the last 10 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I always say that too. I'm, I, I'm sort of like, not that I have a death wish, but I'm like, if, if, if it's a bear or a shark or a wave or whatever it may be, I'm, I'm going out doing what I love. You know, I'd, I'd rather go out that way than I guess than wasting away in a hospital bed or something. Um, you know, I, I love what I do and, and yes, I take precautions, but obviously working around predators and going to places as I go. And, and as you guys know, there's all kinds of things that can potentially be harmful, but, I think as, as long as you're always taking safety into consideration and, and being careful and, and knowing your limitations, like I say, you, you've, you've got to know your limitations. couple of questions on the gear. Is that all autofocus? Obviously it has to be right. Cause you can't pre-focus that stuff. So you're, you're running autofocus through your housing, right? Correct. Yep. And is that yep. the same thing with the bears earlier? Would you have to pre-focus that? Like just kind of guessing, because since you're running it with the cord, you can't necessarily focus. Or how did that work? So yeah, I'm with with the waves and everything. Yes, it's autofocus. Um, I'm never going to fa focus faster than than the autofocus in the camera. Right. Um, you know, depending where it is, like yes, I'll I sort of pre-focus on the the area I'm shooting at, um, and so hopefully I'm you know the focus doesn't have far to go type thing. Um, and when it comes to the remotes and that with the bears, um, no, it's on, it's on the, like the servo, like not single servo, but like the auto server or whatever. So right. it will pick up and, and track, you know, and, and if it's a split shot type thing, I, I have that. So the focal points are above the, the water line. Cause that's what I want to pick up is the bear above the water line with I'm trying to think if I think below the water, um, no, I did keep it that way because I mean, and, and it's sort of a bit of a guessing game with the salmon, right? Because they can, 
they come and they go and sometimes there's a few sometimes there's many so that focus is always kind of jumping back and forth and it's, it's different than sports because usually the wildlife is moving slower than a hockey player like if i have a camera in the net or at ice level like in the boards or something i pre-focus then um i'll pre-focus at a particular point in the ice and i just i just have to sort of kind of stare into that area and i know when a skate hits that point that you know i i can fire that trigger type thing so but yeah with the wildlife you know the bears generally are moving slower than you know a skating hockey player or something so yeah i just I put it in that that auto servo mode, so it just picks up the bear as it's approaching. And then the other question I had: Do you are you playing around with video at all with these underwater housings, or do you pretty much just stick with stills? I will be moving forward. I I never had video capabilities on with my old water housing. It uh, I was as I say I was using the One DX Mark II, One DX originally, and the One DX Mark II, and the particular housing that I use or used, I should say, didn't come with video capability. It was just a matter of me sending it back to Aquatech and getting them to, you know, retool the back of the, the housing and put that in there. But I never, it was one of those things I wasn't doing much video, so I didn't get around to it. Um, now with my my new, my, my latest housing and my 1DX Mark III and the, the Evo 2 housing, um, I have the video capabilities. So Yes, I will play around with that a little bit more moving forward. I <laughs> I was all excited to use my new housing and new camera and everything because I was set to go to Australia on March 19th. And um, I, I canceled all that. It, it was, well, when, when the NHL and the NBA announced things back on March 11th or 12th, I knew the, pay, the writing was on the wall then. So the next day I canceled my trip to Australia and Two days after that, Australia closed their borders anyway. So I'm, unfortunately, my housing has yet to see the water, uh, my newest housing. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to when I do have the opportunity to use it. And, um, and I will utilize the video. I've been doing a lot more video the last couple of years. Um, not, it always comes as a secondary thing to me because uh, the stills are the most important. I don't necessarily make money off of video. I... I it's one of those things where I started doing video to supplement my photography. So when I'm doing talks, you know, or different things like that, it's 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 a really nice added addition to your, you know, to, to your showcasing your work. If you can have some behind the scenes footage or, you know, nice some nice footage of, of whether it's a, a bear or, you know, polar bear, or grizzly or whatever it may be, sort of and you can lead into your still image or whatever, you know, it's just a nice way to compliment. That's why I started doing it. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to utilizing that uh, moving forward when I get back in the water. Man, if I had that new one, I'd be playing around in the bathtub. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. But... <laughs> <laughs> That is amazing stuff. I mean, I looked at some of the wave stuff earlier before we got on the call, but since Jason brought it up, I went while you were talking and was looking at some of those images. I mean, the images are super cool. I just put myself in your position to try to get those images, and I just don't know that I have the... Uh, I just don't know. I, I'm one of those guys that would be there for 30 minutes and be like, okay, I'm out of here. Or I'll watch you do it. I would. I would love to watch that, but... 
I don't know if I could, I'd try it, but I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it's really captivating. I mean, I, there's been lots of days that I've shown up before sunrise and left after sunset. And it's like I say, it's in the minus twenties and I'm there the entire time. And I deal well with the cold, I guess, you know, I mean, I always say you have to dress for success. So I dress well for it, but I, I would much rather be in minus 20 Celsius than plus 40 Celsius like we had here today. Um, you know, hundred degree heat, like I overheat and, uh, start to melt. So, uh, (laughs) I must part snowman or something. I don't know, but, um, I just do do well in the cold. So I have no problem being out there. And as I say at Lake Erie, it's when it's going off, it's such a spectacle that, uh, I, I don't want to leave. I hate when it gets dark, you know, as I say, it can be terrible backlit throughout the day if it's an if it's not a overcast day so you often just i just sit there and i just watch and i observe but i also find that that's valuable time as well because as i say it allows me to sort of if there's any sense of a pattern you know um for lack of a better term it just allows me to to read the lake a little bit better and, and get a better gauge on you know things and Sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, I'll move around, I'll change my positions and, and try something completely different uh, as a result because I'll, as I say, I just move up and down the shoreline and, and try and find something different for a different time of the day. Maybe the next time I go back and tackle it or so it's, um, I, I enjoy, I guess I enjoy being out in the cold, you know, it doesn't bother me. Well, and I think when you're, when you're cold like that, but there's stuff going on, I don't it's out of sight. If, if all you have to do is think about the cold, I'm miserable, but I can be like you, I can be in that cold, cold stuff. But as long as I'm being productive, it time passes by and you really don't think about it. You're so right. It's, it's like shooting polar bears. Um, you know, there's often a lot of time where you are just, you're waiting around in the cold and you feel it. But when there's bears and, and they're moving and there's action, that, that all just disappears you don't it, it's not a factor you know um it, you just keep going yeah because you're preoccupied with something else i guess yeah yeah um and plus right you only get so many of those days a year like you said what you get six to ten days a year if you're lucky right so why would you want to walk away when it's when it's doing its thing exactly <laughs> yeah it, it became you know it's become i shouldn't say became it, it it's it's a priority for me you know like I, I gave up a couple of years ago. I, I, I gave up going to Antarctica. Um, it was like the second year because it was such a success in 2015 when the 2016 season rolled around and I got offered these conflicting dates. You know, I say conflicting because it conflicted with storm season on on Lake Erie. I'll say it was the right choice at the time because I, I think that was the, the highest number of days I got in a season. And I you know, was able to continue building on that portfolio of work. And, you know, and, and then eventually, yes, I knew that Antarctica would come to be, which it did. And, but yeah, it was, it's that important to me. It, you know, it's had that much of an impact on my career that, um, and there are such few days. And as I say, in 2018, I didn't have a single day. So um, you, yeah. you really need to capitalize on it when you can. So Dave, real quick, I've got a question for you. I've been, you know, I've been watching you as you've been telling us these stories and that, and you've got a necklace on. Um, and I'm assuming that, you know, when a guy wears a necklace like that, it probably has some meaning to them. Do you want to tell us about that? 
Yeah. Um, so my, my necklace, um, as I say, has special meaning to me. Polar bears, polar bears and, and great whites were kind of, since I was a little kid, my two favorite animals. Um, I, I'm sorry, sharks, but polar bears have since taken over the number one spot. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it's the amount of time I've spent with them, I guess. I don't know. Um, but uh, so my first trip to the Arctic um, was fresh at a university. And I was up there for a month and I didn't see a single polar bear. And then my next opportunity to go to the Arctic wasn't until 2016. And um, in 2016, I, I'd been there for just shy of two weeks. And, you know, my first expedition working for the company I was with and um, going to all these locations where our expedition leader is like, guaranteed bears here you know we always see bears you know every place we went no bears no bears no bears um it, it was kind of disheartening too because our sister ship was a day ahead of us we had zero bears and i think they had like 53 bear sightings or something you know and it's just like i'm cursed you know like i'm never gonna see a polar bear in the wild and um anyhow i was working on board with um with a, a carver from Iqaluit, Greg Morgan. So Greg is a, he's this amazingly talented Inuit carver and he's been commissioned by the, the government of Canada and, and done stuff for, you know, international, um, you know, international visitors and, and for the Olympics and things like that, like very talented. So he was on board carving, doing these little carvings of polar bear heads out of walrus tusk and, um, I was photographing him each day and he, he didn't have a website or wasn't, didn't have an online presence or anything, but he had told me his daughter who was just turned 18, I think at the time was helping him out in that regard. And I said, well, whatever I shoot of you carving, I said, I'll just give it to you. You know, I'm happy to, to help you out and, and give you a start type thing. So one day he pulled out this polar bear claw and I was like, what are you going to do with that? And he was like, oh, he showed me a picture of one he'd previously done. And I was like, that's phenomenal. I said, can I, can I buy that off of you? Like, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, it's spoken for. I'm like, okay, well, I, I would really like to, to get one of these from you eventually. So anyway, I watched him carve this out over the course of a day or two. And he, you know, takes the polar bear claw. And that's the cool thing. Greg isn't a, a hunter. He, he's buys stuff from people he people you know that he knows um that that do hunt they you know oftentimes as in uh, arctic communities the community shares everything right so if somebody uh, if they have a ticket for a bear and they know greg carves well here's claws for you type thing um so greg um it's sort of the way he you know like i i know that these animals weren't obtained for this purpose, you know? And again, I believe in that whole, as I said, energy thing. And it's sort of like the, the animal's gone on, but this is, this is part of this, that animal. And it, it, it's a way to keep its spirit alive and in a good way. And so anyhow, um, had this walrus tusk and this claw and, and I watched him do his thing and he doesn't work from pictures or drawings or anything. It's just all up here. And he, and just magically you start to see this little, you know, bear head and I'll send you guys a picture, but you see this little bear head start to evolve and he 
you know, he polishes up the claw and makes it all nice and everything. And everything he uses is all natural. So like the shavings from the carving and everything as he's carving, it all gets sucked into this vacuum he uses. And he takes that out and he uses something else as like a binding paste to put it together. So it's all natural. And then the polar bear's eyes and nose are, are made from baleen of a whale. So it's part polar bear, part walrus, part whale. And uh, the next day, anyway, he's like, oh, I'm done the carving. And he handed it to me. Do you want to see it? And handed it to me. And I was like, oh, that's incredible. It's beautiful. I'm like, I really got to get one of these. And he's like, I'm really glad you like it. You know, here you go type thing. Did this for you. You're helping me. I'm helping you. Um, my way of saying thanks. Oh, and awesome. 45 minutes later, first polar bear in the wild. I put it on. <laughs> 45 minutes later, first polar bear in the wild. It was about a kilometer away. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it was my first experience with a polar bear in the wild. And, you know, the next day we had bears and we had a mom and a cub eating a narwhal carcass. And, and from there, now I've seen hundreds of polar bears. And uh, I, I mean, I almost never take this thing off. Um, and I've been wearing it for every single polar bear encounter I've ever had. It's just one of those things I've kind of felt. It's like my own little good luck charm. It's, it brought me a little good karma when it comes to the bears. And, um, so yeah, I just thought it was kind of neat how all all this time without seeing bears and and then this goes around my neck and 45 minutes later it's bear. So that's awesome. <laughs> I'm forever grateful to Greg. Yeah, that's that's really 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 neat. That's a cool story. <laughs> I think that's a great story to wrap it up on. However, <laughs> I do think we need to have you back because there's a lot there's a lot that we didn't have time to get into today you know we kind of touched on the whales still a lot of that experience that i'd like to delve into a little bit more and and the underwater aspects but uh i i think that's a great story to wrap it up on and how things kind of can come back for you i i would love nothing uh more than to be able to come back on with you guys as i say okay. uh, i love the show i you know you're it's it's awesome what you guys do so i i would be more than happy to come back and and talk further with you guys well, you can tell by how much we talk, not necessarily the quality of the guests, but how much you can just let the guests go and, and kind of carry it. And we were quiet for a lot of that. <laughs> so I, I can ramp everybody well, sitting back and listening. And that, that was fun. I greatly appreciate your time. And it was a fun story to hear several stories to hear, uh, but a fun interview. And I definitely would like to do that again. I'm kind of counting on all of our schedules getting a little bit busier in the near future, but we'll have to just figure out a time of year where you're going to kind of slow down and we'll just make it happen. Well, I, I, as I said, love nothing more. And, and that's really nice to hear. So thank you very much. Hey, before we go, give us a shout out on all your social media, you know, whatever you want to put out, but Instagram, Facebook, your website, whatever you want to put out there for people. Cause I think with everything we talked about, they're going to want to check some of this stuff out. Cool. Yeah. Um, my website is davesanfordphotos.com and it's sand as in like the beach and Ford like the car. So make sure you get that middle D in there. <laughs> davesanfordphotos.com. That's going to get an overhaul actually very soon. Then I've also got my Instagram, which is my name, uh, at Dave Sanford. 
And then um, my Facebook, Sanford Photography, and Twitter, it's Dave Sanford with an underscore in between Dave and Sanford. So Instagram is probably the best place. Well, again, thank you very much, Dave, for your time and and uh, giving us this stormy evening there in Ontario. And uh, look forward to the next time. Awesome, guys. Thank you again so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to the next time as well. And much continued success with the show and with your shooting. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way We will be the biggest band in time